Hello, you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to philosophy teacher Andy West, author of The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family, and philosophy. Andy, you and I, we, we know each other reasonably. Yeah, I mean, we, we go back about 14 years. We went to the same university together. We both studied philosophy. The few things I knew about you were that you liked yoga. You were a vegan. <laughs> you worked very hard both in university and outside because you would talk about the very many jobs that you had. Oh, yeah. And you had the most earnest and elaborate voicemail. Uh, of, of anybody I knew at university it began something like hi this is Andy I won't try and imitate your voice but hi this is Andy I'm not at my phone at the moment and then you listed three possible reasons why that would be you said uh, it could just be that I'm away from my phone for work reasons uh, it could be off um, I could be having a nap you went through all the various <laughs> possibilities yeah, with and I, I, that, that always yeah. stuck in my mind somehow <laughs> humiliating me from the off with all these horrible uh, university stories. It's great to see you again and it's been quite something to meet you again through this book and learn so much more about you than I ever knew in those three years and now over to you to explain why we are here in uh, in Stoke Newington at Raza. In Raza, yeah, it's um, I, for people who don't know Raza, it's in Stoke Newington Church Street. It's uh, bright pink uh, front and a, a very pink interior as well. It's a South Indian restaurant, Carolyn Food. Uh, lots of like really kind of unique and delicious uh, like meals, like these these quite small bowls, but like um, like there's a beetroot curry which is delicious. There's like curries with mangoes in it. There's curries with like a made with like a cashew yogurty sauce. Just like really really yummy. And I think this place has been going for a good while, certainly as long as I've been living in London, and it's kind of an institution. Yeah, I see on the wall there we have a picture of Anthony Bourdain's visit, speaking oh, okay. to the uh, manager. How would you start talking about this book in the context of what you wanted this book to reveal about prisoners and the lives of prisoners and the lives inside those prisoners, as the book's title suggests? Yeah, um, I think philosophy kind of shows you that people are highly particular once you do philosophy with them you realize the kind of highly specific nature of who they are and even the kind of double existence they probably have because they probably have their own you know as Socrates called it the silent dialogue going on in their head uh, uh, as being in a, in a place of tension between uh, two positions I suppose one thing that felt quite important to me is the the ideological narratives about prison are incredibly flat you know on the right you have this kind of extreme moral responsibility idea that uh people in prison are like hand-wringingly malevolent uh evildoers and it, you know that's where the kind of retributionist kind of argument then stems from and on the left almost like an entirely structuralist like uh, analysis of prison which you know personally that's kind of I lean towards that but I do worry about 
the absolutization of that uh, way of understanding that world. And I guess I just wanted to bring out like the full, like messy complexity of those people. And uh, yeah, I think just like break out of those like ideological kind of stories. And I, I think there's something about prison that means we don't often get past our ideological understanding of of it because we can't go into it and we can't disprove it we can't test our morality um and so i felt yeah quite a quite a real keen sense that i, I want to do that for the reader you know I, I want to test their morality this story is also a memoir and it's important to remember that and i was shocked by some of it and, and taken aback and I also felt an enormous sense of how could I have spent three years around somebody and had no idea whatsoever the fact that you had grown up in a family with a number of people who had spent time in prison and that you had always felt a certain involvement or implication in crime completely unjustified but ingrained in you yeah and and i can kind of see it now you know here we are on a gentle tuesday evening in a in a nice restaurant um about to have a lovely meal uh and so i so from this vantage point i can see that yeah it was kind of traumatic even to delve into some of those like psychological scars and things like that at the time it didn't feel that way it just felt very kind of urgent and just very like truthful like um you know you're kind of moving this material around this like unwieldy manuscript uh and all these ideas are sloshing around in it um and then you kind of see this like this nucleus in the story and you're like shit that's it and it's it's undeniable uh, when you see it and for me it was about kind of shame and guilt uh, a sense of inherited shame foremost uh, of having particularly my dad in prison and just a, f a, a kind of ominous feeling that the the past will determine the future that there's a kind of fate at play you, you write about um, a kind of character in your head yes yeah, so the there's, executioner there's you a call kind of them. executioner yeah. like a figure there to kind of darken to kind of uh, you know slaughter what joy there is in life uh, in in the way that you know a real kind of chronic sense of guilt will will do it's uh, like as as Nietzsche says and as I, I write in the book like guilt is the instinct towards life that has kind of turned inwards it's kind of um deformed uh and and is anti-life <laughs> um did your prisoners ever hear of your own experience were you always simply no. Andy the teacher who came in and was professionally distant yeah yeah i i never told them partly because there'd be there'd be people i trust and there'd be people i'd kind of want some privacy from um but also, I was so aware of, like, the fact that at five o'clock I was going home and they were going behind the door. And I really kind of wanted to be as honest about the differences between us, um, even if we did have that kind of connection. Uh, so I didn't want to kind of go in trying to ingratiate myself in any way. So I didn't want to kind of lead with, oh, you know, my, my dad's in prison, been in prison or brother or uncle or whatever. I think there's also the thing of on the very rare occasion I have mentioned it, p 
people kind of look down at their feet. Because they might have been a father exactly. going for exactly that. Yeah, exactly. And so I kind of learned not to do that. Since the book has come out, like I'll go into work in the prison and I'll see it there in the library. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'll kind of tell them what it's about. Uh, and, you know, they'll, they'll be kind of interested, but then they'll just be on to the next thing. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not as terribly significant to them as perhaps it is to me <laughs> that's that's the, the real pain of being a memoir writer and you have gone back to teaching in uh, prison since uh, we opened up as a, a country yeah, of course yeah. you weren't for a long time and you you write about what lockdowns were like yeah, in prison not not as much a contrast as it was for people on the outside of prison yeah i mean even now like we're recording this in uh like may 2022 and even now prisons aren't running on a full regime mm. you know there's still a lot of bang up uh, where you'd have an entire prison being unlocked now like one wing gets unlocked at a time there's a lot of restricted activity there's not a lot of meaningful activity and you know like we're just normalizing to just a lower standard of everything at the moment I feel after mm. the pandemic I think we should order something yeah. there are some side dishes here which are kind of they look like sort of staple Indian yeah, um, Sagalu. They've got all sorts of yeah, yeah. names that that are hard to decipher on the menu. But then where you could where they you eat Sagalu, it's just yeah. spinach and potatoes. It's almost like they've. This is for the Brits. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Restaurants beginning to fill up a bit more of an atmosphere since we uh, began talking. But I wanted to ask you about the prisoners you met. Who left the biggest imprint on your memory? I think in the second chapter, there's a guy who. Um, the second chapter is called Freedom. And we discuss the story of Odysseus and the Sirens. And then there's a guy who, <clears throat> during a 23-hour lockdown, uh, the, there's an hour a day where his cell is open and he sits on his bed reading. Um, so you mean to say that when he was able to leave, he chose not to? Yeah, so he didn't go onto the landing... Uh, he didn't go and make a phone call. Uh, he didn't, you know, drift around with his mates on the wing. He did what he could have done just as easily. Yeah, he just stayed on his bed reading, which is probably what he did for the other 23 hours of that day. And there was another example, wasn't there, of the prisoner who would close his cell door before So that's the same guy. For him. Yeah. So this man, Wallace, um, you know, he seemed to have forged this incredibly, like, strong mental capacity to survive... Uh, deprivation, confinement, punishment. Uh, and he's a long-term prisoner. His view was basically that freedom is a mental thing and that you could leave prison today, but if you don't have that mental freedom, like it doesn't really mean anything. And he just shared these interesting stories and the little ways he does that, the ways he punctuates his day with the sensation of freedom even if in a kind of objective sense he doesn't have it so for example your phone call has to finish by 12 uh, if you go over 12 o'clock an officer will put their finger on the receiver and it's over uh, he will always hang up earlier than he needs to and these are just the kind of victories you know kind of imperceptible to, to most other people but that's for him what allowed him to say I'm in control and therefore I'm, I'm kind of free if I'm the master in this situation. There's just something incredibly 
crumbling about meeting someone with that much like mental fortitude you know I, I have a lot of doubts about stoicism in what sense does it fail for you so for me i suppose i'm with sartre when he says <clears throat> stoicism ensures that at the end of the day the master is still the master and the slave is still the slave it's it's looking for freedom not in social or material change but looking for what freedom you can gain when social and material change are impossible or at least seem impossible so it's very popular in prison i think those stoic ideas go really really far there's a chapter on luck uh where i discuss boethius in the constellation of philosophy boethius is in a prison cell he's he's been condemned he's gonna die and he's lamenting his fate and he's visited by lady philosophy who gives him a what i would call a stoic teaching uh, she tells him that nothing is wretched, only thinking makes it so. And she just tells him to just look at everything differently, which I think is kind of the foundation of stoic wisdom, that the, your situation is what you think your situation is. Um, and and the men responded to it really, really, uh, like, affirmatively, most of them, all but a few. And... You know, she, Lady Philosophy tells Boethius that he's lucky, even though he's about to be executed for nothing, really, just some job-top charges. Um, there was this ripple throughout the room of just men talking about all the things they felt lucky for. Like, one of them had recently got a radio. Like, having a radio is a really big deal when you're in a prison cell. Um, that access it gives you to the outside world. Uh, another is in a single cell rather than having to share a cell with someone. You know, the thought of being in a single cell for me would be, like, quite terrifying in a way. But that was... Within that, like, corner of the universe, you could feel lucky about that. Yet all the time I'm kind of thinking, well, it's not just how you think about it, is it, Boethius? Like, it's not just, like... Stoicism seems to have this entirely cognitive approach to the emotions and the soul when really we know that you know living in darkness deprivation confinement is just is physiologically and therefore emotionally really really difficult and what you said there reminded me of uh, the opening chapter of uh, orthodoxy by gk chesterton i've got the line here i wanted to read chesterton's referring to a publisher he once spoke to uh, that publisher who thought that men would get on if they believed in themselves those seekers after the superman who were always looking for him in the looking glass those writers who talk about impressing their personalities instead of creating life for the world all these people have only an inch between them and this awful emptiness. Then when this kindly world all round the man has been blackened out like a lie, when friends fade into ghosts and the foundations of the world fail, then when the man, believing nothing and in no man, is alone in his own nightmare, then the great individualistic motto shall be written over him in avenging irony. The stars will be only dots in the blackness of his own brain, his mother's face will be only a sketch on his own insane pencil on the walls of his cell. But over the cell shall be written, with dreadful truth, he believes in himself. Um, remind us what we have on our table here. Well, this is, uh, this uh, is a lot of food. Chickpea curry, like a chana masala. Some lovely rotis, like uh, paratha bread. All coiled and chewy and delicious. Yeah, I'm so excited. Let's do it. One of the themes that is, is outlined in the contents, but is also, I think, just a theme that runs throughout the book, is this 
theme of shame. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have a say in whether the book was about shame or not. It, it just kind of was. Yeah. We talked about the executioner. I think it's important to, to dig more into that. How have you coped with it in, in recent months? Yeah, yeah. So the book charts a kind of freedom away from shame, but it's a shame that is almost kind of foundational or architectural to perhaps just this person that I happen to be in the world. I do have to say that writing the book has been cathartic. You know, it does, it lifts, it unburdens. Mm. Um, I really don't like that idea of literature as like primarily being about catharsis or therapy or anything. I think we'd lose a lot of great literature if it had to serve that um, function. But you do just kind of, uh, you do just kind of feel lighter and you know you you just you just feel like um you just feel less of a weirdo basically <laughs> like you know i'm getting lots of emails and messages and things from people who are going like oh my dad was in prison or i always feared that i was going to be the same or my brother or uncle or whatever and just just people identifying with you and this very like thing about shame is it's so secretive so it feels so much more you feel so much more of a extraterrestrial than you actually are because you're just sitting there with it in secret, um, and and I, I guess the the privilege I've had as an author is that I've connected with readers through writing about shame, who also have a kind of wildly irrational guilt in their life, perhaps. And you found that this is quite prevalent among readers who've similar experiences to yourself. Yeah, the, yeah, I've the had... shame by association. Shame by association, shame through, by the fact they survived, that they didn't go to prison when someone else did, so kind of survivor's shame, inherited shame. Um, yeah, um, and it's it's an incredibly obscure feeling you know uh when you can't point to an action but you can point to the guilt for that (laughs) action um and so yeah just hearing from people who who connect with that means a lot it's no less irrational than i suppose if if one felt particularly proud of their parents achievements and, (laughs) and sort of felt that they had inherited some of that magic i mean both do seem problematic to me like someone who's incredibly proud of who their mother or father is at I don't know, there's there's a kind of level of attachment you can have in pride that means you wouldn't really become your own person or something. That's right. People dig into their, their family history and if they discover that somebody was, you know, sort of a great craftsman or, or held some high position in society and it kind of makes them feel just an inch taller. I mean, know. they're both irrational, but I mean, you and I know from being philosophers and studying philosophy that... So so is most shit, you know, like most shit is irrational. Uh, I think I'm with Hume on that, you know, the ones, if you try and find a rational basis for most things, you're going to be pretty disappointed. Uh, but it's there, you know, it's there. You can see the children of like wealthy, powerful people do just have this kind of grace. They have this this levity about life in some way, this belief that things would be okay. Not always, of course, but more or less, you know, there's a kind of general rule that's there. Yes, yeah. And and if you grow up in, like, turmoil and fatalism and helplessness, then somehow that can get handed down as well, a sense of powerlessness. There is one other thing I want to say about shame, is there's a character, my Uncle Frank 
who I don't really... Um, I never really write about shame when I write about him. That's a different kind of story. But one of the reasons I think he offers uh, s- such relief in the book is because of his shamelessness. Because he he's entirely, ever since he was a teenager, kind of embraced this identity as an East End villain. Um, and, you know, the more the police, the courts, whatever, try to pile shame on him, you know, the more kind of fuel they're pouring on the fire. He has some great stories about that. I mean, his absolute determination to torture his torturers. I right. mean, there's, there's heroism in that. Yeah, I, I kind of see him as like, um, at one point in the book, I almost talk about a spectrum of shame where you've got Joseph K from the trial, uh, who's, you know, told he's guilty. and doesn't know what he's done, but just believes it. Just and you know is given the chance to go to a party on a Saturday morning but thinks well no I have to go to my trial and you know follows his guilt and then on the other side a total opposite would be Diogenes who kind of is you know I'm, I'm going to masturbate in public I'm going to live in a barrel I'm going to whatever shameless whatever I'm supposed to feel ashamed of I'm going to do that just to like shed shame just to, to get over it. and I sort of feel like I'm like Joseph K and uh, my uncle is like Diogenes in lots of ways. Let's talk about Diogenes. He, in a sense, is the prototype for every comedian that has ever lived. Would you agree that comedians have the quasi-philosopher role in modern society? Yeah, yeah, I do. He was like a performance artist almost, wasn't he, Diogenes? Um, And always there to puncture, always there to... um, I mean, the, 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 the tenet of cynicism, as I understand it, is that human nature is at odds with society as, as we've created it. And I feel like the comedian is saying that they're coming along and kind of poking fun at convention and, um, and you know, the, the order that we kind of give to our lives through uh, civilization. Uh, yeah, that's why it's such a relief to, you know, go and hear a comedian say something. Neither forgiveness nor redemption come up as chapters of their own in this book. And I found that was interesting too, because I expected them to be there. Was there a reason for omitting them or or for not exploring them specifically? In a way, it was so kind of present that um, it almost didn't need its own standalone chapter. The most direct treatment it gets is in a chapter about Caravaggio, uh, who famously painted... Uh, himself beheaded in as David and Goliath, in fact, a double self-portrait, um, and sent it to Rome as a plea for clemency. And I mean, I'm interested in forgiveness. I suppose what I'm interested in is when forgiveness is impossible, perhaps because you've killed someone and they're no longer on this earth to forgive you, or they don't want to talk to you, or you're in confinement or you're not willing to admit what you've done what do people do then to kind of approximate forgiveness in their life and I think with my uncle what I saw was storytelling this idea that for all the failures and frustrations and heartbreak if you can turn it into a story uh, then you've kind of redeemed it somehow and you know he he perhaps he would never say any of those words that I've just said to you now, but he would make the most compelling kind of case for that. 
just being in his company just you know as a kind of self-styled raconteur he can he could really kind of convince you that god this is also funny and entertaining and whatever and as a writer i really want to believe that i really want to believe that by putting words on a page in a particular order finding a form finding a a message you can kind of redeem all the bad shit that's happened to you all the all the bad shit you've done and that haunts you and yet i i don't fully but i can't kind of go the whole hog with it you know i my faith kind of dims uh with that one and and so i really wanted to interrogate that in that chapter of stories the, the chapter about stories is really a chapter about the possibilities of forgiveness right we haven't spoken much about your father and we haven't spoken, I think, at all about your brother, Jason. How, how many members of your family have read the book since it came out? Uh, so uh, my mum's read it several times. It's kind of a relief that they like it because as a memoirist, you're always thinking, am I going to be able to go home for Christmas? You know, My brother, I think, is inching his way through it slowly. I think in a way I'm much more... It, like the, the book tells the story of my brother's life as a kind of past life he's now like a dedicated father of two and um but you know 10 years ago he was really in the throes of a very like life-threatening addiction that saw him go to prison a dozen times and i suppose yeah coming back to shame i suppose he very much wants to move on and so i've written about him as sensitively and as caringly as i can and he he's glad that I did that and he doesn't want me to do anything else but it perhaps means that he has to take it one page at a time with this material I don't know what to make of that yet I was very conscious about the immense power you have when writing someone else's story and I really didn't want to hurt anyone uh, and I haven't but it is difficult for people and I don't know what to make of that. Is that is that a reflection that I wrote the book with kind of artistic integrity? If it's if it's difficult, is that a good sign? Or would I have written things differently if I was a bit more mature? I don't know. My experience of reading this book is that it's certainly not all easy, particularly when you're really putting yourself in your shoes, but it flows so naturally and so honestly. And for that reason, it's thoroughly enjoyable. I wanted to ask whether you had any dates on the calendar that you wanted to talk about things yeah, this summer. Yeah, so the summer's looking pretty exciting. I've got uh, How the Light Gets in Festival coming up soon. Uh, I'm also teaching on a really fun residential writing retreat. Um, Edinburgh Festival, Wilderness Festival, Edinburgh's August uh, writing retreat, and How the Light Gets In is June. I think I've got uh, Wilderness in August as well, a couple of other things. Too. Great, so that's Andy W. Philosophy. Andy W. Philosophy on Twitter, yeah. Okay, excellent. That just leaves me to say thank you very much for agreeing to do this. Thank you. It's, it's great to meet you again. Yeah, it's been lovely.